0: Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio.
1: Hi everyone and welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly, I'm the editor-at-large at at Sports Pro. Delighted to have back with me Sports Pro print editor Michael Long. Hi Mike.
0: Hi Owen, how are you doing?
1: It's great to be back. How
0: How was last week without me?
1: It was good. It was good. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you were missed. But, sure. um, but yeah, Sam Carp stepping in and doing a fine old job. But yeah, well, what have we missed, Mike, in the in the couple of weeks? Well, the few days since this podcast has been on anyway. A few interesting movements in the world of sports media. Uh, Major League Soccer has done a deal with Twitch. Mm. One year expansion to an agreement that was uh, designed... To elevate the kind of visibility of their esports league, uh, inevitably, given that Twitch is a is a video games platform. But also, there's some talk that there might be some actual football shown. Uh, yeah, some
0: some talk of uh, yeah highlights and various other programming in the mould of the NBA's deal. I imagine. They, obviously, the NBA shows uh, they stream some of their G League. Uh, coverage through twitch uh, alongside coverage of their their own esports competition the nba 2k league so yeah it's a sign
1: of the <clears throat> ongoing convergence i guess in across various forms of media um la liga they've been busy shoring up their uk distribution strategy mm. um obviously they've had their challenges with uh, with 11 sports kind of retreat and they are now they're staying on 11 sports, but they've also buttressed that with a pay TV deal and a traditional pay TV deal with um, Premier Sports. And they're going to be on ITV4 once a week. So, yeah, that's kind of the more rounded, um, rounded broadcast strategy from them.
0: Interesting to note from from the eleven point of view, obviously they are relinquishing exclusivity, uh, mm. but retaining you know retaining the rights certainly to the end of the season uh, on their digital platform. Uh, and there's some suggestions that uh, this could be a, a model for future seasons. You know, they they keep digital rights and and the linear and the broadcast rights go to uh, either pay TV, free free to air, or, or a mixture of the two. So, and I don't know what to read into this, but
1: the fact that La Liga have stayed with them um, and are willing to pursue this kind of um, and are willing to pursue this slightly different strategy with them mm-hmm. I don't know whether there's anything significant in that but that that's that's certainly been something that struck me obviously they are 11 are operative in and a lot of other markets and yeah, yeah whether, well, whether La Liga has some other use for them I don't know. What else? We're we're rushing through a few bits here, Mike, but uh, Major League Baseball partnerships between US sports and uh, and betting companies heading into a new dimension with uh, Major League Baseball's japan series being sponsored by mgm
0: expansion of a, of a, of a again an, an existing deal between mgm and mlb i understand obviously mgm has been a bit of a first mover in the sports betting space with the major leagues certainly mm-hmm. uh also have deals with nba and is it the nhl i mean or nfl nhl I believe. Uh, yeah um, so yeah this is a kind of bolt on bolt on to that and i think um their original deal there was some Japanese kind of component in there as well. So Mm. an an expansion.
1: Yeah, bolt on. And also it's an intriguing one because obviously for MGM we've seen, we've looked at so many of these U S sports betting deals and we've, we've kind of said, how is that market going to develop? It's going to be different. It's not going to be like what we see in the UK, especially, or, you know, what we see across Europe with kind of call to action betting partnerships, MGM, they're also a hotels company, basically. So I guess, you know, a bit of international visibility for their resorts is probably of some use to them as well. Um, something that has report that's come out um, just this morning as we're talking from The Times. Uh, obviously, Six Nations Championship is ongoing uh, here in Europe. And, you know, the, the kind of future of international rugby, it's something we, we spoke about at some greater length. Uh, a few weeks ago. But yeah, CVC Capital Partners who took a stake in Premiership Rugby last year, end of last year, have been linked with an investment in the Six Nations Championship. Preliminary talks have been held according to the Times, but um, certainly one to watch, particularly as it pertains to the development, uh, not just of that series, but of the international rugby calendar and, you know, the the various priorities of, of different stakeholders. I mean, we we talked about the financial success of of the six nations as a as a competition and a brand in and of itself and where that creates other challenges down the line for expanding the sport more generally um, but yeah one to watch for sure a um, couple of developments in france kind of at the point where french business meets qatari business and that's mm-hmm. been a real factor in the sports industry for uh for a lot of this decade um as well as in kind of french public life but psg obviously owned by Qatar Sports Investments and have had this increasingly inconvenient deal with um, Emirates as their main shirt sponsor, predating that change of ownership. Accor Hotels, a French company, but with various financial and commercial links to Qatar, um, a billion dollar hospitality investment fund they they set up with the government-owned Qatar Hospitality last year and various other things. So, yeah, kind of drawing uh, drawing those two territories closer together through that PSG investment. Another report over the last few days was um, uh, Canal Plus, the longtime leader in pay TV in, in France. Its parent company, Vivendi, has been linked with a takeover of being sports or an acquisition of being sports, mm. which would be an intriguing one. I'm not sure how the, the financials would work out on that um and neither company is is really commenting one way or the other but um yeah canal police was overtaken by netflix as the most popular Mm. subscription service in france not long ago so we certainly
0: um certainly have some wide you know far-reaching ramifications for the for the french sports rights marketplace wouldn't it with uh two of the major players there it Um, certainly would
1: and it would be interesting to see what it did for be in as a brand obviously all of the issues that they've had with with Saudi piracy and everything else I mean there's there's a lot a lot on the line there in that one but um mm.
0: so with this this presumably relates to, to their to be in sports French business as opposed to their their more kind of you know their it's, international business
1: it's a very skimpy report at this point but so one to watch one to watch but yeah staying in Paris and we've been skirting around this the last few minutes but the organizers of paris 2024 have given their proposals for what they would like included on their olympic program uh, in a few years time and there have been well three that we're going to see in tokyo and one that we're not so surfing climbing and skateboarding get the nod again and break dancing head wow. spinning at the thought of breakdancing on the olympic program but uh, it's a very real possibility it's been put forward as a new olympic sport for 2024 um, all of this has to be ratified by the ioc by december 2020
0: what were your what was your first reaction Owen to hearing this news
1: my initial thoughts breakdancing surfing climbing and skateboarding sounds like something that the coolest kid in like an early 90s us kids sitcom would be mm. really really into in terms of the merits of breakdancing specifically obviously it's come in via the the youth olympic games where it had been um, a medal event it will have come in under the aegis of the dance sports federation in terms of its competitive merits it is no less of a sport i guess than something well some of the gymnastics events certainly yeah. something like synchronized swimming or figure skating in the in the winter games you know it's a it's a very physically and technically demanding of pursuit course. yeah um and it has you know there's some artistic interpretation in it at least as as we would be likely to see it as yeah. um as a medal event at the olympics i'm assuming they're not going to have crews throwing down and like serving each other or whatever i don't know <laughs> but um yeah it it kind of fits in line with with some of those other sports obviously Paris has pretty extensive kind of hip-hop culture and all that kind of stuff as well Mm -hmm. so it's not as bogus as it sounds kind of in isolation I think whenever this kind of thing comes up I'll remember when I was in Rio during the IOC session a few years ago um went from the IOC session to a skate park where they were having like a local radio station was putting on a an event, uh, and it was pretty clear that none of the people there knew about the inclusion of skateboarding in the yeah. next Olympics, and certainly didn't much care. I mean,
0: yeah, it well, know. it's one—it's—it's one of those things, isn't it? I think you know, you speak to people probably in surfing and, and climbing as well. You know, you say, you know, are you aware of these kind of Olympic aspirations of the international federation? And they probably probably wouldn't have a clue. And it ties back mm. to that idea that you know, perhaps the olympics the ioc need these kinds of sports more than these sports need the olympics i think the issue i have with this is it's this idea of you're in one games <clears throat> in one games out the next how how do you develop a sport and and plan commercially and uh, uh, commercially at the federation level um for the you know the associated benefits of being within the olympic games and how do you promote the sport and, and sell the sport off the back of the Olympic Games if there's a chance that you know, you know, some of these younger athletes coming through who would aspire to compete at the Olympics in their chosen sport ultimately wouldn't then get the opportunity to further down their line, or they may do, but there's no guarantees. Um, yeah. I think looking at uh, some of these sports that will most likely be included at Paris, I think surfing and skateboarding of the four of them would be most likely to you know, given the the culture in l a in twenty twenty eight um, most likely to be added to that that program as well, which would mean three consecutive games being included on the Olympic program, which you know some might argue that that's that's case enough to be. Uh, granted a place permanently on the Games program, yeah, and then and then there's obviously the the considerations that the IOC has to make in terms of looking at the existing makeup of the program and some of the sports like a modern modern pentathlon, for example. Um, you know, how relevant are they in this day and age? Yes, they are legacy sports, and and they have the tradition and the history and the heritage, but. Um, you know, where, where do they scale back that existing program to allow mm. for some of these newer sports to come in? So I think it's just this, um, there's a sense written about this extensively over the last few years that, uh, the IFC has kind of made this up as they've gone along. They've just taken this kind of freestyle approach and not really thought about the long-term implications of what this means for those sports in particular like baseball and softball coming into mm. tokyo hugely relevant for the japanese market you know turfed out for paris may or may not be back in for for la given that the um you know the strength of baseball within that market um you know how do they plan for that and obviously when when those sports are permitted onto the program You know, the ISC has said that you're not actually going to be given a cut of any of their revenues from those games. So where where's the financial perk for being included on Mm the program as well? So yeah,
1: I think none none of these are none of these are new debates. I think they would have been conversations that people have had when these changes were first announced. And this Mm -hmm. idea that you go from yeah giving people a, a permanent route onto the program into this games-by-games games approach. Um, I mean, we all remember the farce of, was it 2013, with wrestling mm. dropping mm. off the programme and being readmitted and then having sports like squash, poor squash, um, yeah. having, having its route blocked at the last minute when they probably had a, a, a reasonably decent chance of, of being accepted onto the programme permanently. I think when they decided they were going to take this approach, there was always going to be... It, it you're it's going to be messy going through it like it's yeah. there's always going to be um difficulties in applying this there's always going to be compromises along the way and i think you know either they've got to refine what they do with it going forward and or we just get used to the idea of the olympics being like that and maybe you whittle down the number of core events that you have to say you know the athletics and swimmings and gymnastics and then the the event organizers can have can you know include more mm. at their own discretion and that's just the way it, yeah. it will be from the kind of the 2030s going forward i mean yeah you look at the range of bids that are gathering for 2032 you've got one from australia one from indonesia possibility of an indian bid um it's very likely that these are going to be more regional in nature um certainly what is it southwest queensland is one and you know southeast the, yeah yeah uh, sorry, Southeast Queensland. Mm. Um, and that will change the, the character of the games potentially as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think influence might become a bit stronger. I don't know. It's it, I, yeah, I think you can certainly sympathize with, with the sports that are being frustrated in their ambitions. I mean, baseball is a curious one because it did feel like that was heading towards a, yeah. a longer term. Well,
0: yeah. And they, they kind of, Organizational hoops that they've had to jump through to to even be considered. You know, the the merger with with softball being one of them. Once they were mm. turfed out in in Beijing after two, you know, two thousand eight, and um, you know they they've surely taken the, these steps that are on the on the recommendation of the IOC. Yeah, um, I do know, wonder about the
1: frustrations at putting together a tournament for twenty twenty and and what that uh, what the implications of that have been I think what's what's really and you touched on it a little bit there but what's really going to be a challenge for the Olympic movement is this kind of dichotomy between sports that they're trying to bring in that where they're trying to import some vibrancy and some and the sports that are on there like fencing like modern pentathlon like uh, archery or shooting which You know, I'm not questioning their place on the program by any means. But if you are then looking at the Olympic Games, that spectrum is very wide, but it also doesn't feel like there's anything in the middle of that. It kind of goes from Victorian gentlemen's sports at one end to sports that were invented in the 1980s and 1990s at the other um and then just a core of kind of popular global sports in the middle and you're like what's the character of the olympic games what which is it is it can it be all things to all people does it need to change a little bit in order to to achieve that um what's the rationale for then excluding a sport like baseball or like squash is it really representative of global sport in Mm -hmm. the fact that some of the world's biggest sports Mm -hmm. You know, one sport that has had its own kind of tortured discussions about how it gets onto the Olympic program or whether it wants to be on the Olympic program. Uh, Something like cricket, you know, which is one of the most popular sports in the world. Something like MMA, which is one of the most rapidly emerging sports in the 21st century. And you look at, you know, um, IMAF didn't get gave yeah. Server status last week as well, so that has moved. That's the opportunity for that to be on the Olympic program, whether it's appropriate for it to be on or not, is is a little bit further down the road. Well, um, I think um, you've got yeah, I think chaos around boxing and whether that's going to be involved. So you know, yeah, what what's the Olympic Games' place and this is
0: yeah. Well, all, so all of this is being being worked out, you know, it's yet mm. to be clearly defined, and uh, I think there's the there's the political kind of bureaucratic stuff that all you know goes into this certainly concerning the, the MMA federation with the the existing combat sports that are on the program and, and everything that goes into that I think every sport has its um, own challenges but I think mm-hmm. um, I just think from the federation level you want clarity you want due process you want uh, everything to be done for the right reasons in the right way I think um, in terms of you know if your ultimate goal is to uh to get onto the olympic program because you're not on it and you want the, the funding and exposure that comes off the back of that uh you don't want the you know, you know the goalposts to be shifted every 4 yeah. years um and you know interesting that um last week world bowling uh, the Global Federation uh, released a statement, you know, with the title that they were not chosen for Paris 2024. Uh, obviously, expressing their disappointment in, in not being selected, but just uh, raising the fact that there was no no shortlist was really made. There was little, wasn't much in the way of consult, consultation or collaboration uh, with the organisers. No formal process being determined, I think they said, and, and no shortlist. So. Um, yeah, clearly this is uh, going to be an issue ongoing as long as as long as this is the policy that you can be in one games out the next. I think this is going to be a, a just a, a conversation that continues on and in, until it's clearly defined by by the IOC. Um, yeah, you know, as you say, the character of the games is going to be called into question.
1: Yeah, completely. What's the what's the identity of the event going forward? I think one thing that the Paris organizers talked about that does look very exciting and kind of a A very positive and fresh direction for the games is trying to trying to add a participative element to the whole thing Mm -hmm. Um, and a very simple way that they're doing that and it's one of those ideas that i'm given that it happens at major events major standalone events all the time very odd that it hasn't already been executed but the you know mass participation marathon on the same day as the olympic medal events that looks to be a really exciting idea and it's one that you just wonder how it's taken so long, but that has to be a way of of taking the Olympic Games forward and, you know, making it more explicitly about people getting involved in physical activity as well as, you know, this big passive sport watching experience that that everybody is so familiar with.
0: Well, I'm I'm all for it, Owen. I am all for it, and uh, I mean, it, one it, one of the issues that was raised, obviously, the dates that the Olympic Games, you know, it's a summer occasion and the Paris marathon is intentionally it's scheduled the the annual Paris marathon as it currently exists is scheduled in April I believe to kind of mm. avoid the the heat and humidity uh of the French capital in within the summer so uh there's that to consider um but I think as I said before you know if this can be done then by all means do it and bring you know it's one very obvious uh way of bringing Yeah. You know, fans into the into the games i'm and seeing it you know the, this is this this is the direction of travel within the mass participation industry in general i think of uh you know certainly in you know the tour de france they have the attack At- At- de At- At- mm. tour where they where you know amateur enthusiasts can kind of uh, compete on stages of the tour de france so surely applies and um yeah it, it's it's just this this idea of of you know, we we talk relentlessly about about how to engage people, how to bring people into sport, how to um, make fans feel involved within a within a, an event, to bestow a, a, that event feel to a, a, a an elite spectacle. And I think uh, this is, this is it's a very obvious and easy way of doing it.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll see plenty of other digital bells and whistles incorporated into that as well. Right. I think we have talked for long enough about this particular topic, Mike. So we're going to take a break there for part one. Uh, Joining us in part two, we're going to keep talking about the future of sport. We've got uh, Ricardo Guadalupe from Hublot, who's going to talk about their sponsorship of the Cricket World Cup. So, yeah, back with you in a sec. Welcome back to the SportsPro podcast on the SportsPro website right now. uh, Matt Slater, the Press Association Chief Sports Reporter, has his latest column. Those of you who are attending or are thinking of attending SportsPro OTT Asia in Singapore at the end of March, 27th and 28th of March, um, there are some roundtables on there uh, featuring some of the speakers for that event you can get some insights from the likes of cena sports and singtel mailman uh, tennis australia rugby pass twitch uh, talking about ott talking about the asian market giving you just a taste of what to expect in singapore in a few weeks time Uh, head to ott if you want to find out how you can be there if you haven't committed yet which is just madness mike We were talking a bit about the future of sport in part one. We said we were going to carry on doing that in part two. You have a piece from the latest edition of Sports Pro magazine where you're looking at why drone racing is the sport of the future. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: I can, Owen. I can indeed. I uh, have to admit, yeah. before I wrote this piece, I wasn't all too familiar with, with drone racing. Uh, but uh, thanks to Harry Newhouse, the uh, Drone Racing League's Senior Director of Business Development and Partnerships, for running me through exactly what it's all about. And to quote him, he says that the DRL merges the real with the digital. We combine the thrill of Star Wars pod racing with the real-life adrenaline of Formula One and wingsuit flying. What, what's not to like about that, Owen?
1: Well, I mean that 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 pod racing scene in Star Wars. I don't know, is it <laughs> thrilling? Is little little Jake Lloyd, bless him, he was not very good.
0: Well, I'll leave that uh, I'll leave that there. <laughs> but uh, in terms of the piece, yeah, no, uh, Harry is uh, is is talking. Uh, about how they're positioning themselves as the the sport of the future, the future of sport, whatever you want to call it, and uh that's uh obviously tied into their commercial um strategy they you know how they package themselves and and promote themselves as a sponsorship proposition, kind of using that uh video game inspired kind of very tech driven uh, positioning to um, to kind of bring brands in into the sport and to um, to promote themselves as this kind of flexible, creative, innovative um, partner for brands uh, looking to engage these kind of uh, what is a, ultimately a male-dominated uh, audience. Um, mm. But he he talks about opportunities for for bringing more women in, uh, into the into the sport and getting involved. Uh, it talks a bit about their, their media strategy, uh, their event hosting strategy, and there's some fabulous images uh, within this piece. So do check it out if you get a chance.
1: Mm. I'm obviously, drone racing, a new sport for a new audience, whether that's a sports audience or not. Competitive right, so tech. Mm. Competitive mm. tech. Mm. Um, certainly preparing sports for... This kind of era of disruption is something that is uh, there's been a lot of discussion about for the last kind of 18 months or so. And, and it's kind of reaching an increased pitch. But anyway, all of this is a, a way of building up to the fact, Mike, that the playing conditions were confirmed last week here in the UK uh, by the England and Wales Cricket Board for the 100. Um, mm-hmm. Coincidentally, the same week that the 100 days to go mark was passed for the Cricket World Cup. We're going to talk about that a bit later as well, but um, yeah, the hundred, the new kind of proprietary short-form competition, getting rid of overs and having, uh, looking at hundred balls per innings, creating new franchises and an entirely new competition, men's and women's competition.
0: What have um, what have they got against the over, Owen? I mean, what's uh, what's wrong with six balls, six balls, and then another six balls, and then another six balls?
1: don't know uh i think they like the idea of it being 100 balls i think there was you know the the discussion is all about whether this was engineered as a more broadcast friendly competition for the bbc in particular which is coming back to broadcasting live cricket for the first time in about 20 years and you know and, and feels that 2020 just it just has too much going on in it but this is the this is the format so apologies to any of our international listeners who are not familiar with the sport Because this is these rule changes are being uh, these rule changes are very much in the vernacular of people who at least have some sense of what's going on. Um, But it's 100 balls per inning, so each team will face 100 balls. Change of ends after 10 balls. Bowlers can either deliver five or 10 balls in succession. Each bowler will deliver a maximum of 20 balls per game. So that's kind of similar that maximum to the restrictions there are on how much a bowler can bowl in an in innings at the moment this is intriguing and again you know teeing up Hublot a little bit later but each bowling side gets a strategic timeout of up to two and a half minutes um and then there'll be a 25 ball power play for each team where fielding restrictions will be in place yeah what are your what are your thoughts beyond beyond mourning the end of uh, the end of the over mm. uh, in a manner of speaking what are your thoughts on the hundred as a concept, as execution? What it says about the the challenge that rights holders face if they want to tweak things, rework things, come up with new things, and keep people on side?
0: Uh, I um, am open to being proved wrong, proven wrong on this one. But I, I just uh, I question how far these changes will go and how they will. What the motivation is really? I mean, twenty twenty is is now an established form of the game, and you're talking about twenty fewer balls. Uh, I, I just think I, I feel like a lot of the changes are arbitrary, Owen mm. I, I'm, I, I don't know. I don't know. maybe, maybe I'm wrong. but um interesting that I was out in Australia last year speaking to a couple of guys at Cricket Australia, and I mentioned this uh, concept. I think it was not long after it had been originally kind of announced or floated and uh they kind of laughed it off and said well, what's that all about then we've that's the first we've heard of it that would be odd though wouldn't it and uh they kind of left it at that and that you're talking about um you know people who are in in this world of, of cricket whether whether this is specifically designed for people who are not like them presumably it is but um you just wonder what kind of pull it's going to have for those casual or kind of uninitiated audiences who have never really looked at cricket, but or, or been to an event. But is this really going to bring them in? What, what are your thoughts, And I know you're you're a cricket aficionado, so you, mm. you have better, you know, greater insight than I do. But um, the
1: part of it all that I completely sympathise with is the idea that that 2020 has shown itself to be a viable form of the game for. The current moment and you know it's been an enormous commercial success obviously in india where it was it's been like a, a commercial accelerant for the sport but also worldwide it's it's been more exportable um the very nature of it fits into tv schedules quite neatly it's easier to create tournaments and take them around the world all that kind of stuff and you know yeah why why change some of the fundamentals of the rules rather than the packaging but Look, the ECB insists that all of that side of it, you know, this is based on research. Obviously, they do. They they have their data partners. The the two circles is of this world. Although I don't know whether two circles are responsible specifically for delivering the research on the hundred. Mm-hmm. And they have they've looked to you talk about Cricket Australia. They've looked to the Big Bash as the model for this from a marketing perspective, and looking at specifically looking at uh, families. You know, T Twenty Blast, which is the existing competition is is very popular with the post-work crowd in London and Manchester and all of that kind of thing but I think they are keen to to tap into uh younger audiences who might then progress onto other forms of the game or might not um I don't know I think the way that this has been handled speaks to I'm going to be as diplomatic as I can but it speaks to the contrasting um and sometimes conflicting priorities that exist within the English game specifically. You have these counties that are organisations that are well over 100 years old that are not as profitable as the international game and so are kind of beholden to what the ECB's plans for the sport are. The ECB similarly wants to make commercial and financial progress, but is dependent on the structures within the county game you know to find players to support the game at grassroots level all that kind of stuff generally is both an enormous kind of commercial success in terms of british sport but also has struggled with relevance um over the last 20 years over the last 15 years in particular and obviously free to air tv has its role in that but so does participation and the fact that it's not played that widely at school level in the way that it used to be um etc 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 and it's also as more generally as as a culture it's a sport that has been both unbelievably conservative and also subject to more changes of format and rules than almost anything else and I think that always gets forgotten so you know you talk about the over over six balls now hasn't always been the case hasn't even been the case for the last century um, you'd have kind of had less than a hundred years ago, teams agreeing on how many overs there were going to be, sorry, how many balls there were going to be in an over, uh, you know, in a specific tour or a specific series, you've had four ball overs, six ball overs, eight ball overs. Similarly, English one day competitions, you've gone from 60 down to 40, up to 45, back to 50 in the, the kind of longer forms of the game. All this stuff changes a lot more than people kind of remember post hoc. Mm. Um, so I think that the, all of that feeds into the discussion you know I think that the other thing that cricket's shown is that when you get if you if you get the balance of competition right it can survive all kinds of efforts to, to kind of tweak with you know it, it has it's a scenario based game mm. basically mm. it's about can you set up a chase and have a team manage it and if the 100 can succeed in that and do so with lots of world class players participating, then from a sporting perspective it will probably be a success. On the cultural side, that's a that's a different conversation. And I feel yeah. like what's gonna be difficult is obviously there are a lot of radical ideas involved. It's gonna be whether everybody now comes round and says, Okay, this is happening. This might be really exciting. Mm. Let's get on board with it. Or whether there's a kind of attitude of mutiny or, you know, or whatever. And then there's a kind of a, a desire to see it fail i don't know
0: it's an interesting one you you speak you know passionately about it and i think you're you know you're you are a cricket fan and you um i I just feel like culturally as a society you know in our kind of need for immediate gratification we it it drives it drives some of these rights holders towards brevity when Mm. really really the true essence or identity of a sport, the character of it is in that ebb and flow that, as you say, it's scenario based. no two moments are the same it's it's a, an appreciation of the um you know how the dynamics of a game, a game can change, and there's individual battles within games, and there's you know um there's lots that go goes into it that fuels your your passion and your appreciation of a sport and i mm. I just think making something shorter. And making what what appear from the outside to be arbitrary changes, albeit rooted in research, and I'm sure they have done their research. It's, yeah, research it, it, and, and playing trials
1: as well. They they had, mm. you know, they got some of the county players involved and, and some of the women's uh, professionals involved in yeah. in trials last year. Yeah. But yeah, I think the other thing is to see where this fits into the strategy for the ECB. Mm. I think this is self-consciously being positioned as a new thing. Uh, it's for a BBC audience. As it's a gateway drug. It's a gateway drug. Exactly. Um,
0: it, what it is, isn't it? It's getting people hooked on, on, on the game. It's an entry level format, I suppose is what you're saying. And then, and then, yeah, you feed them into the, to the showpiece tournaments, the, the traditional formats and, and get them excited about that side of the game as well. It's mm. it. Yeah. It, it, it does join up when you talk about it in that in that way so So you know all the best to the ecb i hope it does work out you know all the controversies around it i mean yes
1: there is going to be a there might be an element that some people find gimmicky there might be an element that people find like you say a kind of oversimplification Mm. um i think you know the, the two separate things are its reason for existing is one but the the issue i think that a lot of people have had is the manner in which it's been executed, Um, Mm. you know, that is something that I think we are observers of this. And we, you know, we, 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 you talk to people on both ends, you talk to people from the ECB side who have their reasons for doing it and feel that they're being misrepresented. And then you have people on the county side um, who feel that they basically, a lot of decisions are being made over their heads, that a lot of time is being exhausted on this, that might be better spent elsewhere and that their reservations haven't been properly listened to. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's an interesting case study for where a lot of sports are going to go when they if they're trying to be more responsive and introduce more formats of the game. And I think, you know, cricket already has three uh, mature formats. I think it will end up that many sports will have more, yeah. and it will be a case of you know, yeah, different different things for different platforms different audiences mm. I think that's that's going to be where a lot of this goes um, mm. and the execution of that is, is going to be really fascinating to see yeah because you know, sports about traditions ultimately and how that interacts with new ideas is
0: yeah but I think it, it so much of this comes down to uh, these new formats and our ideas and innovations comes down to timing and execution doesn't it really I think if you if you do it at the right time, if you do it in the right way, you can mitigate, the you know, you can silence those people who say, you know, you're doing this out of desperation as opposed to kind of innovating from a position of strength and you're doing mm. this for the right reasons. So um, I think the proof will be in the pudding with this. I think pr- probably one of the big indicators will be presumably uh, whether other cricket playing nations will take this up. Right. Well, we'll is this something potentially potentially will be, I mean, you know they see that you know this will be a, a test case for for the sport as you know as perhaps the IPL was and and whether other other national associations will will roll out this type mm-hmm. of product yeah um, I mean,
1: yeah you know in, in in some respects other other organizations already have their own version of um of, of what this is trying to achieve I mean the IPL is obviously one of the most successful sports leads in the world you have the Caribbean Premier League which has been very effective in uh, in the West Indies Big Bash yeah. perhaps a little bit bloated this year but has largely been a real success at delivering exactly the kind of audience that the ECB is looking for and then you have other things that are being tried you've got this kind of 10-10 competition in um, in the UAE so you know there's, people are going to people are going to try stuff but yeah the proof will be in the pudding and I think yeah. other sports will be looking at this quite carefully I mean 2020 is the great success I think for a lot of sports that have similar challenges with uh, with length yeah. and, and kind of digestibility. And whether the 100 becomes the same template, I, I really don't know. But you are right about timing and execution. Speaking of which, the Cricket World Cup is taking place in England and Wales this year. The challenge of that is obviously at the elite end England want to win it. And they want to deliver something for the national cricket fan base um, for the international fan base the ICC are going to be particularly keen that this is a, a big success there's been some controversies around the structure of that tournament with obviously a, a cut in the number of teams and an expansion to a, a kind of single first round group but yeah that's going to be the credibility of English cricket is going to be riding on, on a successful execution of that tournament on and off the field the commercial viability of cricket in England and around the world is is also going to be in the spotlight. And last week, to coincide with the 100 days to go mark being passed for that tournament, I spoke to Hublot chief executive Ricardo Guadalupe. Hublot has been a sponsor of the ICC since 2015 before the last Cricket World Cup. It's obviously a different audience for them. It's very much, it's a sponsorship that's got at least one eye on the Indian market. Um, But he talked about his excitement about being involved with the tournament in the UK and how changes in sport and changes in cricket could make things a little bit more interesting for sponsors, particularly an official timekeeper like Hublot. Uh, We will be back with him just after this.
0: Enjoying this SportsPro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with SportsPro. This is your
1: second Cricket World Cup that you're coming into uh, through your partnership with the ICC. What have you found so far that cricket offers uh, as a sponsorship proposition that other sports in your portfolio aren't able to offer?
2: Yes, I think uh, cricket, uh, of course, is is more a specific sport dedicated to uh, some specific countries uh, because the culture in cri- of cricket is more linked to um, to what is uh, the british let's say culture you know and uh, is more focused on countries like england like uh, india like uh, pakistan like australia and for us uh, we found that uh, through cricket we can uh, s- build our brand awareness uh, in a different way because we're uh, touching also different people. So it's a, let's say, a new community of, of people that uh, we offer to, to know what is the brand Hublot. Of course, not all can afford to buy a Hublot watch, but at least we can build the brand awareness. Like we we're, were doing it in football, uh, but we can do it in cricket. But of course, more focus, as I said, on specific countries.
1: What have you learned about that community and about the sport since the Cricket World Cup in Australia four years ago?
2: I think that uh, there are people that are really passionate, you know, and uh, uh, most of this community are really crazy uh, and passionate about this sport. So for us, um, we have seen that um, they are faithful as well. So so we have really learned that uh, when they see a partner they can really say uh, very, posit- uh, very positive ab- about the brand as I said um, after to, to, to link uh, the brand awareness through uh, results in sales this is a bit uh, more difficult but even though for, for us we are really building the, the brand in India and uh, we have seen really in India uh, an incredible interest uh, in the last years about the brand and probably uh, our sponsoring link to cricket has helped
1: and what advantages does this year's tournament being in England have from that perspective?
2: For us, I think from the activation point of view, of course, to come to England, uh, it's easier than going to Australia. Uh, so we will going to do an international activation and we will offer the experience, not only to cricket passionate, but also to people like me. I'm not a, I, I'm not a specialist in cricket, but to live this kind of experience of uh, participating to an incredible game uh, of cricket and incredible stadium and uh, having this experience, uh, social experience of of, uh, this sport. And I think this is really interesting. And the activation in England, of course, is going to be much, much easier.
1: What are what some of your plans for how you're going to publicise this partnership, how you're going to drive value out of it? Um, you know, obviously, you were involved with the, with the FIFA World Cup last year. Um, cricket is a different sport. It has different points of um, even you know, allowing for the difference in the scale of the audiences and the, and the location of them. Um, the format is different as a media proposition, as a, uh, you know, a spectator experience. Where are you going to weave Hublot into all of that?
2: Well, on TV, we're going to have a visibility on TV, so I think that uh, the audience uh, are going to be quite good, uh, of course, for the big games. Um, and in addition, we will uh, drive uh, some uh, uh, brand awareness through uh, advertising. For instance, through uh, with arrows, uh, we will have uh, cricket visibility, here of course in our boutique and uh, probably we will do also some uh, uh, media media plans to really make advertising around the product that we will uh, develop for, for, for this cricket world cup so the idea also for of course the ICC is that when you have a, br- a partner like Hublot is not only in the cricket world but it goes outside the cricket world so for them it's also interesting to have a sponsor like Hublot
1: I mean, obviously, from a creative point of view, in football, if you're an official timekeeper, it's a timed game. In cricket, the units are, are different. Um, you know, it's 50-over World Cup. Yeah. So, wh- how do you how do you anticipate making that connection between Hublot products and and the sport?
2: Yeah, of course, there is not really a technical uh, link. It's more uh, an approach about the aesthetical and the design uh, point of view. So, it's going to be more linked to the to the materials used in, the, in cricket, in the ball, for instance, the specific stitching, uh, the colours linked to the World Cup, uh, the colours of the ICC uh, World Cup. So there, is, there will not be yet, let's say, uh, a technical uh, link between the, the, the watch and the, the sport. But uh, we never know in future, we could work on something uh, as we did last year, with our Big Bang referee watch connected. Maybe uh, in the future, But this takes quite some development, but this could be imagined in the future. But for this year, it's going to be more linked, as I said, linked to the material and the aesthetical uh, approach on the watch.
1: Yeah. How much longer do you anticipate your partnership with the ICC going on for?
2: When we sign, is always, we believe it's for years, you know, so we believe that it's a long-term partnership as we have done uh, in football, you know, we're in football since 2008 and we, are, we signed already Qatar, uh, uh, we signed uh, the Euro Cup, so, so for us it's really long term.
1: So it's appealing for you, for example, to be on board until 2023 when it, the, the World Cup will be in India?
2: As I said, you know, every time we explore sports where there is no really, uh, it's a virgin territory for a watch brand nobody has really gone uh, maybe a, a lower brand i heard but uh, in this uh, particular sport it's for us it's always uh, we want to take the place and to keep it and that not another competitor can come you know so uh, that's why it's really important and i think cricket is really uh, the fact that we want to remain long term
1: mm. um wh- where does sports sponsorship fit in your marketing strategy i mean you know, you're, you're partnering with mass media events, um, cricket World Cup final, particularly if India are involved, could be the, the most watched event in the world this year. Um, but not that many people, as you've alluded to, are going to buy or be in a position to buy a Hublot watch. Where where does it all feed into? Um, feed into as Australia? I
2: said, when it's a virgin uh, territory, we believe it's good for the brand because we can touch uh, people. Uh, with our brand awareness and as i said there are millions of people but if only a very small percentage can afford to buy uh, and i'm thinking you know indians to see something all the indians are really passionate about cricket so so there there is really potential consumers as well so not, uh, england probably a few also australia the same so when we we see it's really virgin i think we believe it's always good for instance talking about another sport uh, golf to say something we're exploring a little bit golf with ambassadors but it's a it's a territory where you have many other brands so it's more difficult so so i think that's not always the the right thing to do so when it's virgin we believe it's good
1: the organizers of the world cup have a remit domestically to kind of drive uh, awareness, drive, excitement, generate a lot of excitement um, among younger fans, among uh, maybe newer fans as well of the sport. Um, you know, and it's and, and to try and break out beyond the the cricket uh, audience. Mm-hmm. Um, what what role do you feel you can play in that, and and what would make a successful cricket World Cup for Hublot this year?
2: Yeah, I think cricket. Uh, I think has to evolve as well. And, you know, at the end, every sport, every uh, game must be something, it's like a show. It has become a show, a spectacle, where people can have an experience. And you have, of course, the game, but you have always around the game, before, during, after the game. Uh, And, of course, that's the experience, which is really interesting. And I think there we can bring something to the cricket to, to make it, you know, becoming not just a sport for huge, uh, passionate and fans, but also for people that want just to have an experience and enjoy, enjoy a great moment in life.
1: And how do you hope to accomplish that?
2: It's, it's a long work, we will try to show that, as I said, inviting people that are not maybe uh, super cricket fans, but I will have always an experience with a specialist of cricket that will explain. Uh, what is this sport because it's, it's not that easy to, to really understand and through that we hope that uh, in the next world cup we can do even better and for changing some rules about the time of the games will be something probably interesting for the future you know maybe. to go to two hours and 30 minutes there is a uh, some projects around that maybe it could be good for for the sport you know
1: okay thanks very much thank you Okay, that'll do it for another Sports Pro podcast. Thank you to Ricardo Guadalupe for his time last week. We'll be hearing more about the Cricket World Cup. We'll be hearing more about the Rugby World Cup. We'll be hearing more about all kinds of things in the world of sport and technology and the intersection between those two at Sports Pro Live, Mike, on the 30th of April and the 1st of May.
0: Mm, looking um, forward
1: to that one. Yeah, well, as Sam and I alluded to last week, that's now confirmed for the O2. Oh,
0: wow. mm
1: So the O2 in London on the 30th of April, 1st of May. Um, Tons of people from a whole range of really interesting backgrounds, a lot on the agenda. It's a very exciting, um, very exciting agenda put together for this year and a very exciting concept, I think, for the event as well. Uh, So head to sportsprolive.com to find out a bit more about that. Um, In the meantime, you're not going to be here next week. I'm not, Owen. I'm, uh, I'm heading back to Switzerland for some skiing. Wonderful. Well, do enjoy that. Uh, we will have something a bit different for you on the podcast in that case. But thank you, Mike. No, thank you, Owen. I enjoyed that. And thanks to all of you for listening. Um, I will be back with you next week. Bye-bye.